I would ask you, what is your ideal life? If you could live in a place, if you could have the lifestyle that would make you the most happy, if you had the circumstances that would be in your wish list, what would it look like? Would you perhaps want to live in Beverly Hills, Palm Springs with the rich and the famous? just lounging it up by the pool or going to a five-star restaurant or traveling around the world wherever you want. Now, maybe the folks here aren't that pretentious. We probably at least would want to live in some place where it doesn't have a negative 45 wind chill, okay? So at least that. And maybe some of you, you're, you're more of the outdoors type. You're, you're kind of our Michigan, you know, Grizzly Adams type. For you, the ideal life is to live up in the Upper Peninsula. They're surrounded by a paradise of, of hunting and fishing in some type of a remote cabin away from everyone. But what about your own life? If you had the ability to just snap your fingers, make a list of qualities that you would want to change about yourself, about your circumstances, about your character, about your personality. If you could come up with just a list of changes you would like to make so that your life would really be happy, what would they be? Maybe some of you would say, I'd like to shed a few pounds. Maybe some of you would say, I'd like more time or more money to, to do the things that I want to, to explore my hobbies. Some might say, I want to exercise more, go to bed earlier. Others of you might say, on this day, I would like for my team just to go to the Super Bowl once. That would be really nice. For others of you, you might like a more prestigious position on your job. And that's a fine list. That's understandable. And if those are some of your goals, I don't have any qualms with that. But if it's those cosmetic changes are primary in your thinking and are primary in your motivation as to what you think would make you happy. I want to share with you a list today, a list of eight qualities that Jesus gave in the opening of his most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. Eight qualities that he said are the blessed, the most ideal, the most happy life from God's perspective. In fact, I'd like us to read that list together. We'll have it by way of the screen. It's in Matthew chapter 5 and going from verses 3 to 10, if we have that by way of the screen, those scriptures. Starting in verse 3, let's read that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we look at that list and we think, that's a blessed and happy life according to Jesus. Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, persecuted for righteousness. And some people look at that and say, count me out. 
That doesn't look like a happy life to me. In fact, one guy updated the, what he considered should be the, the, the Beatitudes of the 21st century, and he said this, Blessed are the rich, for theirs is a kingdom of pleasure. Blessed are those who feel good about themselves, for they shall be confident. Blessed are the aggressive, for they shall control the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for recognition, for they shall be noticed. Blessed are the demanding, for they will receive what's coming to them. Now that's a list we're more used to, isn't it? But that's in sharp contrast to the list of Jesus. And folks, one thing that I know, one thing I'm for certain, is that in our culture, happiness is sought after more than it's ever been but it has been least discovered and found. In fact, there are now industries that are devoted to helping you to live your most personal, happy, and ideal life. But the fact is, is that we have more and more people who are outward smiles while they're inward screams. They're miserable. Smiling on the outside, but depressed on the inside. And I think it would do well for us to take a couple of months out And look at what Jesus defines as the truly blessed, happy, and ideal life. What I want us to do today is two things. I want us to look at Jesus' roadmap, how he pictures the journey to the blessed, the happy, the ideal life to be. And I want to talk about where that journey begins, where it starts. And the punchline is this, is that we begin to live a blessed and happy life when we live out of the generosity and the grace of God, which we do not earn, nor can we repay. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to begin in the message of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have the Scripture by way of the screen. Now let's set the stage. Verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds... What is the situation? What is the scene going on here? Well, as I've said before, in this time period of the Jewish nation, they were in a time of oppression. They were overruled by this oppressive foreign power, the Roman government. They were brutalized. They were overtaxed. They were in poverty. Their moral values were being polluted by Gentile influences. The things that they had held dear, their traditions, their values, their morality were being flaunted and disrespected. And the people were powerless to do anything about them. And they longed for a leader. They longed for this figure like Moses the prophet who would come and deliver their culture. Do you ever feel that way about the culture surrounding us as Americans? But here's what made it worse. Their religious leaders more often sided with the oppressors rather than the people that they served. The religious leaders were right there in the pockets of those who had power and influence, and they became corrupt and compromised. And along comes this guy. His name is Jesus. And Jesus does not come from Jerusalem. He does not come from the temple. He does not come from the places of religious prominence. He comes from this small, hick, outside town called Nazareth. He's an outsider. His dad was a carpenter. He was a carpenter. And Jesus grew up swinging a hammer. He had callous hands. And he was one of them. He was just like they were, except different. 
He was this man with this incredible influence over thousands upon thousands of people. And here he is on this mountain and thousands are gathered around him. And right now it is hot and heavy. The conditions are ripe that Jesus could, relieve, could start an uprising and begin a revolution. And this has everything of the makings of a Rob Roy or a William Wallace or a Robin Hood. And right now thousands of men are ready to form a military coup against the government in the religious establishment in just the words and the directions of Jesus who they want to be their military leader. But what will Jesus do? It says he went up to the mountainside and notice he sat down. And his disciples came to him and began to teach them. Now notice this, this is kind of interesting, that in the days of Jesus when they taught the rabbi would sit down and everybody else would stand up while he taught. I thought maybe we ought to try that here at Crossroads. Next 25, 30 minutes, you stand up and I'll sit down. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll delay that and try it another time. And he begins with the words, not war, not revolution, not uprising, not discontent, but he begins his message with the word blessed. Blessed. Isn't that interesting? What does it mean to be blessed when we think about being blessed in our culture? You know where we use that most word the most in our culture? It's when we sneeze. Isn't that kind of funny? Somebody sneezes, what do we say? Oh, bless you. You know, they sneeze again, bless you. I know that for me, when it comes to that, you know, I'll say the bless you, you know, the third or the fourth time, but about the fifth time, I don't want to say bless you, I say get a grip, okay? All right, just stop it. But we say bless you. I don't know exactly why we do that, but what does it mean to be blessed? As you go down and you dig down into this word, it's the word in the Greek, makrios. It means fortunate, well-off, happy, living in a state that is the envy of others. And so much is hinging on this word. I, I kind of went to the background of the word a little bit more deeply and it's a, it's a deep word that goes back into Greek history. And in the days of their mythology, when they considered the gods and they looked at their deities, they considered them to be makrios or blessed. Then later on, they would look at those who would go into the bliss of heaven in perfect paradise, and they were considered to be makrios, to be blessed. And then later on, when you looked at the 2% of that culture, the wealthy, the powerful, the elite of the culture who had everything going for them, they were considered to be makrios, to be blessed. And, and Jesus uses this word. He says, you're blessed. I want you to live a life where you are happy, where you are content, where you are feeling fulfilled where the ideal life that God intended for you is being experienced in your home, in your family, in your personal life, in your business, wherever it be, I want you to be a person that is blessed. But he begins and he says, the first blessing comes to those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, what in the world? <laughs> that doesn't look like a blessing to me to be poor in spirit. But folks, here's where the blessed life begins. It is when we realize and acknowledge our spiritual poverty before God. 
when we realize that we have nothing to give to God but our sin, that we have no resources within ourselves that can impress God, can leverage God, that can make God do anything, and that the blessings that He gives to our lives comes because He is loving and He is gracious and He is forgiving and He is generous. And when you realize that a life that is blessed begins when you submit and you yield your life to the generosity of a loving God that can never be repaid. But to get to that place, you have to be poor in spirit. Now, let's look at the roadmap of these Beatitudes. I, I want to look at what Jesus has in mind when he talks about the, the place of blessing and growth and what it looks like. And one way you can look at this, these Beatitudes is that they're like a plant that has three phases of growth. They start with the roots. It's underneath the ground. And then they go up into the shoot. And then they manifest into the fruit. So let's look at these briefly. In verses 3 to 5, if you're in a note-writing mood, put in your note the roots. The roots. Before God brings a transformation and blesses our life, in the way that he intended. He goes into the roots of our heart, of our mind, of our thinking, and the Holy Spirit does spiritual surgery. He begins to change our motivation. He begins to change our faulty thought patterns. He begins to do that work within us. I had a guy who looked at me, he says, before God changes us on the outside, he must first work to change us on the inside. And the first thing we realize is that the first thing that changes within us is right here. It's our mind. It's our thinking. And the first three Beatitudes addresses the spiritual surgery that God does underneath the surface of our lives. First, it's being poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where we give up self-sufficiency. This is where we let go of pride. We'll talk more about this later. Secondly, verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is where after you give up your self-sufficiency, you become pliable to change. Folks, this is where we get to the place where we go to the rock bottom of our sin and our failure. And there at the rock bottom of that, we find the solid truth of God and we find His unconditional love. And there at that rock bottom place, we find a solid place of His truth and His love to rebuild and to guide our lives into the future. But with that comes mourning, with that comes repentance, with that comes cleansing and change that starts to occur in our lives. And I've seen many strong men who carrying regret in their lives, carrying sin, carrying things, who have hardly ever cried, come to this place of mourning, and they have found liberation and freedom at the cross and the forgiveness and the truth of God. Number three is meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does meekness mean? It's strength under control. It is that place where in our lives as we go through hardship, testing, and failure, instead of becoming bitter, we become better. And it's where men and women take their talents and their abilities and they begin to yield them and have them controlled by the power of God. 
Now, what does it mean these people inherit the earth? These people make your best long-term leaders. If I look back at the 19th and 20th centuries, I'm not a historian, but if I were to judge who were the two greatest leaders of the 19th and 20th century, I would put my vote in for Abraham Lincoln, 16th president during our Civil War, and Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of England during World War II. These were men who shaped the landscape of how our world is today. We would not live in the world that we live in if it were not for their influence. They were ones who helped us to inherit the earth in a better way than we would have had they not been leaders. But what these men had in common is that they were both physically strong, they were mentally strong, they were talented and capable, but both of their lives had been shaped by failures and difficulties and hardships. And through their failures, they always became better rather than bitter. They always learned. And when they were thrusted onto the world stage, they had realized that they were tools in the hands of a providence and a destiny that was greater than them. And that is meekness. And those are the type of leaders that we need in our world today. What this means is when you look at the first three Beatitudes, is that there are people that you will love, you will invest in, you will disciple, there's people that you believe in, where God is doing surgery underneath the surface. And it's messy and it's hard and it's difficult. And it doesn't seem like they're getting a lot of gains. It doesn't seem like they're bearing a lot of fruit. But before we go up, we have to go down. And so sometimes we're investing in people. We're on the surface. There doesn't seem to be a lot of hope and changes. But we believe and we trust what the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives in the process. Amen. Then it goes to the shoot. As God begins to work underneath the surface of, of our lives, then there starts to be growth. And then it says, verse 6, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You get to that place where you put aside the world. And the thing that really satisfies you is knowing God and being like God. Anything else just feels like a, a black market substitute. And then you move to the place of fruit. It starts to move into your outward behaviors in your relationships. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. You become forgiving and gracious of, to others. And instead of having these strong and judgmental opinions about others and life, you are simply a vessel of love and you leave judgment into the hands of God. I like the one sign that says, I'm just going to love everybody and then I'll let God sort them out later. And that's the spirit of the merciful. You move to the place of purity. You have a changed outlook on what you believe is to be good and right. Things that you once appealed to you, things you once laughed at, things that were once attractive to you now seem to be at a place where they just don't matter or they even make you sick. Blessed as the peacemakers. You get to that place where you have good relationships even with difficult people. Satan's always dividing us, isn't he? 
Satan is always tearing us apart. But those who are moving forward in the kingdom of God are finding ways to weave lives together, to patch up the wounds that have caused hurt and division, and they're bringing peace and healing within a broken world. In verse 10, they're persecuted because of righteousness. You live an outstanding life, and you're willing to face the heat for it. It was Max Lucado who said that if you, want to, if, you want to lead, if you want to lead the orchestra, you've got to turn your back to the crowd. And that's where this place is, where you're at that place of your walk with God, where you're entrusted with leadership, and you lead in the way that God wants you to, and you're willing to turn your back to the heat, the criticism, and some of the difficulties that come along with doing what God wants you to do and doing what God calls you to do. This is the blessed life. Now let's bring this in a little more practical. Let's turn this a little more inward. Maybe there's some of you here this morning, you're struggling with forgiveness. You want to forgive, you know you should. You've heard stories, you've seen other people who have forgiven others who have hurt them. But for you, the wounds are too deep and the anger is just too raw and you just can't do it. So how do you forgive? You go on this roadmap, you go on this journey, you admit your powerlessness, you admit your poor in spirit. You say, God, I'm not capable of doing this. I'm going to quit trying. I'm going to start trusting. And then you mourn, you begin to allow the Holy Spirit to show how he's forgiven your own sin, how he's been gracious to you. And you're thankful for that as you experience his love. And as you move on that journey and path, you hunger for righteousness, and you know more of who God is, how loving he is, how gracious he is. And you see the contrast of who you've been and who he is and how he loves you. And so you move to that place where you begin to be merciful and you forgive as he's forgiven you as you've been on that journey. Maybe there's some here, you're struggling with images that are in your mind. Maybe there's been some things in your past, maybe things you're, you're dabbling in now that put in corrupt images there that fill in the flames of, of your desire and it leads you out of control, your emotions. And it's a prison that you want to escape, but you can't do it. As hard as you try. And so you go on this path. You begin to say, Jesus, I can't do this. Spiritually, I'm impoverished. And you begin to mourn over how you've viewed people, how you've looked at them, what you've thought as you experience the forgiveness and the truth of God. And you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as you know who God is, you distinguish between lust and love. And God changes your thinking. He purifies your soul. You become gracious to others and you become pure of heart. And you want relationships that have honor and trust and decency rather than lust and self-consuming self-centeredness. See how that works? There's a journey that we go on. See, when you look at this, Jesus is not talking about a casual shift in our attitudes. He's not talking about an adjustment within our thinking. He's talking about a renovation within our heart. A change of the old self 
to a renovation of the new self that comes from having the Holy Spirit in our lives and following Jesus. And folks, this can be messy at first when he's doing the work underneath, when he's in the roots of our heart and our thinking. It can be difficult as we go through the process of growing, but as it begins to bear fruit, we experience God's ideal of the blessed, of the happy, of the ideal life. Well, let me bring this in for a landing. Where does it begin? Where does this happy life that Jesus talked about begin? It begins when we become poor in spirit. So let me bring this in. Let's put some shoe leather on this. And the first thing that we need to do is become poor in spirit. Let me give you two ways to become poor in spirit. Number one is this, deflate your pride. Deflate your pride. To be poor in spirit means you reduce the size of your pride and ego. Because when you reduce your pride, it's at that point that you can see beyond yourself. It is our pride, it is our ego that blinds us. Somebody has said that the emptiest and the most unhappy people are those who are full of themselves. Isn't that true? And I don't care how much money you have. I don't care who likes you. I don't care where you live. I don't care what prestigious position you have. If you are a person full of yourself, full of ego, full of pride, to the degree that you have pride is the degree you have misery and unhappiness. And folks, if we want to begin to have a happy life, we've got to deflate our egos. We've got to deflate our pride. Where does this begin? It begins with acknowledging God's the creator and we are the created. That's the first key to human enlightenment, isn't it? There is a God and we are not him. And too often we invert the roles. God is the creator, which means that we have a duty to him and he has given us the job description. We don't do the opposite and say, God, we're so good. We're so wonderful. We've been to church so much. We've served you so much. We're such good people compared to other people. We are this and that. So God, I'm giving you a job description that you owe to me. And folks, in our pride... We look at God and we begin to give him our own Ten Commandments, don't we? Expectations that we have of God. So in our pride, for example, we say, God, thou shalt provide a level of income that will sustain my chosen lifestyle. Come on, God. There's a whole theology that caters to that today. We look at God and say, God, thou shalt give us joy and fulfillment in mutually satisfying relationships. God, thou shalt insulate our loved ones from the sufferings experienced by others in this world. And we give God our commands. And if God doesn't meet those, woe to him. He's going to face our temper tantrums. He's going to face our hissy fits. He's going to face our childish acts of rebellion. And I have literally seen people walk away or backslide from their faith, not because God did not fulfill his promises in the Bible, but because they did not, God did not fulfill the expectations that they placed upon him that came from their empty desires and their foolish ego. To be poor in spirit means this, I owe God everything and I can give him nothing. 
God owes me nothing, and he gives me everything. And the blessed life comes when we live out the generosity which God has given us through Jesus Christ on the cross. Number two, depend on God's strength. Don't only deflate your ego, but move from there to depend on God's strength. There's a country music song, I'm sure most of you have heard it, that tells of this single young woman with her child, and she's driving on these icy, snowy roads. And in the song, she says that the girl is low on gasoline and low on faith. Her life is hard, it's out of control, and then she hits this icy patch and her car begins to spin, and it's representative of how her life is out of control. She has no one to turn to, and she has no one to look look to, and so in the song she says, Jesus, take the wheel. Now, I'd sing that for you this morning, but I love you too much to do that, Okay. <laughs> But that's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's saying, God, I can't do this. Take the will. Take over. God, I can't figure my life out. I've tried. I've worked. I've done this and that. But God, to be poor in spirit means Jesus, take it over. And folks, it is more the heat of our circumstances than the light of the truth that leads us to give Jesus control of the wheel of our lives, isn't it? It would be nice if we heard the truth and said, okay, I'm going to do that, but we usually don't. It's our circumstances that lead us in this downward spiral, and then we say, Jesus, take over. I can't do this. For example, there's people who are in sin, and they're in sin and sin and sin, and their sin is making them miserable, and it's making other people miserable, and they're confronted with their sin, and they see the results of their sin, and then they use phrases like this, look, I can handle it. It's not really a problem. I can quit any time. You're making too big of a deal of this. And their pride comes up as a defense against a surrender to God. Or the, or the guy who had a gambling addiction, and he said this, I'll bet you $50 I can quit any time. And they're those kind of folks. In denial. There are sins in our lives that the Bible refers to as strongholds. Things that have been practiced over and over and over and over that have just become so rooted in our mind and our habits, and they're so difficult to overcome. And sometimes I have found, I mean, I've seen this over and over. Somebody's facing a a stronghold and they say, I just can't break this thing. I can't lick it. I just can't get on top of it. And so they become poor in spirit and they say, Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take over. But sometimes they go a step further because that stronghold in their life is so deep. And I've seen people come to me or come to others And they'll say, you know, Pastor Anthony, can I meet with you? I need to talk. And just by the fact that when they go to somebody and say, I need to talk, when they know that they're humbling themselves, when they know that they're willing to confess, when they're willing to go to another brother or sister that they trust and admit that they need their prayers and their support and their accountability, they begin to find this sense of hope and relief. That's what the body of Christ is here for, isn't it? And that's when we become poor in spirit. 
One of the most famous Christians of the 19th century was a guy named Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China of the China Inland Mission. Hudson Taylor was a giant in the faith. He was a giant in the intellect. He was a man that if I could even approach one-tenth of his stature, I would be amazingly blessed as as a pastor and a spiritual leader. But Hudson Taylor came to a time in his ministry where he was tired, he was burnt out, he was discouraged, even though he had known so much effectiveness in his life. And he wrote this, these words to a friend. He said, I am so weak, I can no longer work. I am so weak, I can no longer study. I am so weak, I can no longer read my Bible. I cannot even pray. I can only lie still in the arms of God like a child in trust. That's Hudson Taylor saying that. Folks, I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care how mature you've been. All of us will come back to that place in those critical times of our lives where we will need to become poor in spirit. Say, God, I don't know. I don't know the next step. I don't know the way through. I don't know how this is going to work. But Lord, like a little child, I just have this simple trust in you. Admitting that you don't know is the first step to being taught by God. I want to invite the worship team to come forward as I tell kind of a concluding story. There was a father, he was on a Sunday afternoon trying to take a nap. And his little four-year-old boy was rambunctious and wanted to play. And his dad was starting to go to sleep. The son came up to his dad and said, Dad, I, I want to play. I want need to do something. And so the, the dad just wanted to sleep. And so he got the idea, pulled out this page from a magazine that had this picture of the world. And he just tore it up into all kinds of little pieces like a puzzle. And he knew that his four-year-old son didn't know what the, the contours of the, the places on a map of the world look like. And so he said, put this back together. And the dad went back to sleep. He thought he'd keep his son busy for about a, another hour and a half or so. It was 15 minutes later, the little boy came back to his dad. He said, Dad, I've put it all back together. He says, you're kidding me. How did you do that? And he went back and he saw that the little boy had put the picture back together. And he said, son, how did you figure all that out? He said, well, dad, when you turn to the other side, it's a picture of a man. And I put the picture of the man back together. And when I put the picture of the man back together, the world came together too. And Jesus, when he looks at those who are wanting revolution, who says, make this world a better place, change my circumstances, make this world more peaceful, Jesus says, no, I will first put the man back together. And when the man gets put back together, then the world will get put back together. And if you and I want to be changers of our culture, if you and I want the blessed and the happy life, we will walk in these blessings of God and we will be peacemakers in the world around us.